If you would, if you've got a Bible, uh, go to the book of Ephesians chapter 2, because that's where we're going to pick up in our study as we continue to study God's Word together. And one of the distinctives of Grace Bible Fellowship is that we did make a commitment early on to study the Word of God in an expositional manner, uh, taking books of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, which is the New Covenant, and looking at them verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph from beginning to end. Because that's the way they were written, that's the way they were intended to be understood in the early church. And so that's one of our commitments, to understand and discern the will of God, the full counsel of God, uh, studying the scriptures that way, whole books of the Bible in their entirety, uh, from beginning to end expositionally. We've been doing that with the book of uh, Ephesians, one of the most basic books that Christians and a church need to understand. And we just finished uh, chapter 2, verse 10. And by the way, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 10, Paul is emphasizing the theme of personal individual salvation of the Christian and how great and glorious it is and how you attain that personal individual salvation. And now he's going to make a major transition starting at verse 11, and that's where we are today uh, for chapters 2 and 3, where he's going to talk about not individual salvation as much as now the emphasis is on corporate salvation. Yeah, you did get saved as an individual person, God saved your soul as one individual sinner if you're a Christian. But it's more than that. Uh, No Christian is a lone ranger. There are no lone ranger Christians. When you get saved, you get adopted into the whole family of God. And also you become a part of uh, Christ's body. You're only one member. Jesus Christ is the head and you're one among many members. So there are no only children. You're not the only child when it comes to Christianity. There's a corporate group element to our salvation. That's what Paul begins talking about in verse 11. He's going to talk about the church and the fact that we are a part of the family of God. So right now I just want to cover uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. And Paul has a specific theme he wants to emphasize regarding our corporate salvation and also those that he was writing to in Ephesus. For the most part, they were non-Jews, meaning they were Gentiles who came to know Christ. That's the audience he's addressing. And so he's going to address them as Gentiles who have been saved by God's grace And follow along, chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, and listen to what he's going to talk about. It's this theme that I put on your handout there about real racial unity. So let's see what Paul reminds Gentile believers, something important they need to remember. He says in verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, now if you're not a Jew, that's speaking to you and me. I'm not a Jew, so I'm a Gentile Christian, so that's who he's talking to here. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time, that time is before you became a Christian, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity or hatred, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. 
So if you look at the top of the notes there, I put real racial unity, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, Um, because there is uh, a real racial unity that can be attained. Um, The world talks about aspiring to have racial unity, because the fact that races don't get along and that there's prejudice and there's bigotry uh, is a reality, and it's been going on for thousands of years. As a matter of fact, racial Prejudice has been happening since the time of the fall for thousands of years. And people want racial unity, or at least some people do. They preach it. They want racial unity. They want the races to get along. They don't want there to be any prejudices regarding the ethnic origin that you have or the color of your skin. And the world, they have their answers as to how we can accomplish racial unity here in America. As a matter of fact, America and its 200 plus years of existence is riddled with racial division and racial hatred based on races, isn't it? And it's even going on today. Uh, So people have come up in the secular world of how to solve this problem of racial unity. If if all the races could just get along and we didn't have any racial prejudice, how wonderful that would be. So in the 1970s here in America, they came up with multiculturalism was a solution that was proposed to solve the problem of racial unity. And so that's been going on for about 30 years. And by the way, that hasn't solved the problem of racial disunity here in America because racial disunity is still just as strong as ever. Prejudice is still just as hateful as ever and real here in America. Uh, There was affirmative action, which was also a plan to solve the problem of racial disunity and prejudice here in America. That hasn't solved the problem either. Other people have thrown money at it, or we just need more money, more programs, more education, and we'll solve this problem of racial prejudice. And that is not the answer. Those are just superficial band-aids to solving the problem of racial disunity. Then you have other uh, options that have been offered to bring about racial unity. Famous people like John Lennon of the Beatles. Do you remember him? Maybe you don't. Maybe you're too young, but he was a famous person, and he was a musician. He was from the Beatles, and uh, he wasn't just a musician. He was a philosopher and a theologian of the highest level. He said, because he tried to solve the problem of racial unity, uh, he wrote a song and said, give peace a chance. All we are saying is give peace a chance. Just everybody get along. His solution was just smoke some marijuana. Take your clothes off and get along with everybody. That was a salute. It didn't work. And I'm serious. That was what he was proposing. He even wrote a song that was famous called Imagine. Imagine everybody getting along. Imagine nobody fighting. Imagine, this is how it goes. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. And he goes on to say, just imagine everybody getting along. No disunity. No racial fighting. And on and on. Well, that's just, that's just a dream that never came to fruition because it is superficial and it's a human suggestion, but it's not going to get to the root of the problem uh, because racial disunity, prejudice, bigotry is a real problem. It's been around since the first sin ever committed in the human race and it will continue to plague planet Earth until Jesus comes and restores all things. So in terms of dealing with racial unity, we need real answers to solve that problem. And the Bible addresses racial prejudice. And that's one of the things I appreciate about the Bible is it doesn't ignore real problems. Racial disunity is addressed by the Bible. It's talked about by the Bible. Uh, The Bible tells us why we have racial disunity. Uh, The Bible also gives us solutions to have peace between the races. And that's what Ephesians chapter 2 is about, verses 11 through 18. Paul's whole theme there is now that these two races, the Jews and anybody else that wasn't a Jew, who have been fighting and who have hated each other for the most part, for literally for thousands of years, now can literally get along at the deepest level. There can be true peace between Jews and non-Jews. 
Well, how is that possible, Paul? Well, he tells us the answer in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. It's not a superficial answer, it's a spiritual answer, and that's the only way to deal with uh, racial disunity, bigotry, hatred. But I want you to just flip through a couple of passages with me uh, to look at the Bible and to see what it has to say about the reality of racial disunity, bigotry, hating another race because of their ethnic origin or because of the color of their skin. We have different races in here this afternoon. And you have different ethnic origins, different backgrounds, different ancestors, yet we don't have, yet we have a a peace, a supernatural peace. We have a harmony, and there's a reason for that, and the Bible gives us the reason. But I want you to look at Genesis chapter 12 if you have your Bible. And because in Genesis chapter 12, for the first 11 chapters, God was dealing with the world at large and all of the nations. But at Genesis chapter 12, he began to deal with just one nation, and that was the nation of Israel. He was going to begin to create this nation, his beloved nation called Israel, and he was going to create Israel through one man named Abram, and he changed his name to Abraham. And he made this great promise to Abram when Abram was about 75 years old, and God pulled him out, and he, he, told, and he made this promise to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, uh, starting at verse 1, God said to Abram, Now the Lord said to Abram, Keeping in mind that Abram, at 75 years of age, he was an idol worshiper. He was a pagan. And yet God, in his love, chose to work through Abram in a special way. And he said, he made this promise to Abram. And he said, Abram, go forth from your country. Uh, What country was that? That was basically down by the Chaldeans or where Babylon was, where Saddam Hussein lived, down in that area. That's where he lived. That's where he was born and raised. Leave that area and go to a place that I will show you. Go forth from your country. Leave your relatives Uh, Leave your father's house to the land which I will show you, which will be the promised land. Verse 2, and here is the promise. And I will make you, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Well, that nation was to become Israel, the Jews. And I will bless you. And so you will be, oh, and I will make your name great. And Abraham's name is great in all of history. The whole world knows Abraham. All the religions know Abraham. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And to those, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a great promise that God made to Abraham. And some basic things that he told him there. By the way, this was 4,000 years ago. 2,000 years before Christ, God made this promise to Abraham where God decided he was going to create the nation of Israel. He was going to give Abraham many descendants who would become the people of Israel. They would become the Jews. Um, God promised to bless Abraham and his descendants, but he didn't promise just to bless the Israelites or the Jews. Because in this, this blessing, look at verse 3. In you, at the end of verse 3, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All nations are going to be blessed through you, Abraham. How is that possible? If you're not a Jew today, if you're a Gentile like me, there's a promise here to the Gentiles. And that is that God was going to promise to bless the whole world, all nations, even if you're not a Jew, through Abraham. And the way that promise was fulfilled was through one of the descendants of Abraham, and that was Jesus Christ, the Savior. He would come to be Savior of the world, not just the Jews. But the important thing is, is this is where God began to create this very special nation called Israel that he was going to work in a unique unique way with. Then Tim read Genesis 17, where God ratified this promise he just made through this external sign called circumcision. That was a sign of the covenant. And so it was a physical act. It was a painful act. It was to be done on Jewish boys when they were eight days old as a sign and symbol that they were were Jews. They were part of the nation of Israel. So they began to do that. And then in the days of Moses, a few hundred years later, in Leviticus 12, God told Moses that the nation of Israel needed to continue the act of circumcision. 
Because one thing God had wanted the Jews, he wanted them to stand out and be separate from the nations around them and to be different and distinct. And so God took this act of circumcision very seriously. Now look at Exodus, if you have your Bible, look at Exodus chapter 4. And here's how serious God took uh, circumcision, the sign, the external sign of the covenant for God's people, the nation of Israel. And I'm just going to read this verse if you don't have your Bible there. Um, where God was taking Moses and leading the Jews from Egypt into the promised land, and God was giving them all of those laws by which they were to obey God and be distinct and be his people and be a priestly nation. And he wanted to uh, continue the act of circumcision as one of the distinctives of the nation of Israel that would set them apart from the nations around them. They were supposed to obey that. Uh, But it says in Exodus chapter 4, as they were traveling... Now it came about, verse 24 of Exodus chapter 4, listen to this. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him, Moses, in the desert. God confronted Moses as they were traveling. And God sought to put Moses to death. Did you know that? I don't think they showed that in the Ten Commandments with uh, Charlton Heston. Where God confronted Moses and wanted to put Moses to death. Why is that? Verse 25, then Zipporah, that was Moses' wife took a flint, that's a rock, that you sharpen like a knife, and cut off her son's foreskin. In other words, she circumcised Moses' son, and she threw the skin at Moses' feet, and she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. Verse 26, so God let Moses alone and didn't kill him after all. Wow. That's amazing. So apparently... Moses let some time go by as he had a son and let his son grow up without circumcising him uh, when he was a baby like he was supposed to be. And so God threatened to punish, chasten, and even kill Moses if he didn't obey that covenant. And so uh, God threatened to kill him, and so Moses' wife intervened and circumcised the son on the spot. And it sounds like Moses' wife was a little upset by that too, wasn't she? As she threw the the bloody skin down at Moses' feet. Here's your circumcised son. Anyway, but that's amazing. So over time, God calls the nation of Israel out. He makes them distinct. He makes them different. He gives them specific laws that they're supposed to obey. And he wants them to be different than their neighbors, the Canaanites or the pagans. Because one of the main reasons he wants them to be different than the Canaanites is because the people around the Jews, they worship false gods, they worship idols, they worship trees, they worship rocks, they worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. They sacrifice their babies in the fire to a god called Moloch. They practice all kinds of gross sexual immorality. They're into polygamy and everything else. And God doesn't want his people to be like that. He wants them to be separate. And that's one of the main reasons why he gave them over 600 laws called the Mosaic Law. That the Jews were to obey, to set them apart from the rest of the world to reflect God's glory for the world. So he gave them the Law of Moses. Now what happened when God gave uh, the Israelites the Law of Moses, the Jews, the Israelites, let it go to their head. They became proud and arrogant. And they began to have a superior attitude, looking down their nose in a condescending, critical way towards those who weren't Jews, thinking that God loved them more than God loved the rest of the world. And so this arrogant attitude developed over hundreds of years and got horrible. It just got worse and worse as the years went by. So the Jews were being very sinful and proud in their attitude towards everybody else. So that by the time you get to the New Testament, Jews living in the days of Jesus despised Gentiles illegitimately, wanted nothing to do with anybody that wasn't a Jew. I want to give you one example, maybe it's a familiar example, but in John chapter 4, keeping in mind that God made every human being in his image. God so loved the world, not just the Jews. 
That has never changed. That has always been God's heart. Did you know that it's in the book of Leviticus where God told the Jews, love your neighbor as yourself? That's where the verse came from. And in the book of Deuteronomy, God told the Jews and the Israelites to love the foreigner. That was non-Jewish people. So God has always had a love and an affection for those who weren't Jews. He always had a desire for them to be saved and come to know him as the true God. The purpose of the law was not to give the Jews a superior attitude towards the Gentiles, but unfortunately that's what it became. In an illegitimate way, they abused the law and the reason why God gave it to them. But in John chapter 4, uh, I just want to read, this is a story about Jesus, where a uh, day in his ministry, John chapter 4, verse 5, it says that uh, Jesus was out ministering, and then it says, He came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. So, they were, so Jesus is traveling with his 12 apostles, and they're going to travel through a land called Samaria. Now, in Jesus' day, one thing you didn't do is you shouldn't go through the land of Samaria because in Samaria, uh, there were Gentiles there. And there were people who were not full-blooded Jews there. And so in Jesus' day, uh, the Jews believed that the Samaritans were an unclean people. And you don't have anything to do with Samaritans. You don't go near a Samaritan. You don't eat with a Samaritan. You don't share their utensils. And you don't even touch the Samaritans. The Samaritans have the cooties. It's what they believed. So you're not even supposed to travel through their neighborhood. And here Jesus is deliberate, and he goes right through Samaria, which you were not supposed to do in the minds of the Jews. And so the apostles... They thought Jesus shouldn't be going through Samaria, but they followed Jesus anyway. And they were very uncomfortable by it. So Jesus goes into Samaria. He goes down by a well. Verse 7, it says, There uh, came a woman from Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Now, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So it's just Jesus and this Samaritan woman who was not a full-blooded Jew. Jesus shouldn't even be talking to this woman. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman therefore asked Jesus, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And then John adds, For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Why? Because they had the cooties. At least that's what the Jews of Jesus' day believed. So there was this incredible, horrible, sinful prejudice that the Jews had developed over literally centuries by misunderstanding why God gave them the law. God didn't give them the law so that they would hate the Gentiles. They twisted and distorted the law. Now, the apostles were infected with this racial prejudice towards Gentiles. They didn't have a heart of love and compassion towards the Gentiles. Even Peter, Pope Peter, the, the head apostle, had a wrong, prejudiced attitude, and he was a bigot towards Gentiles originally. And it took Jesus a while to hammer away and soften Peter to give him the love of Christ, where Peter would get to a point where he would love Gentiles just as he much just as much as he loved Jews. And I'm going to read from Acts chapter 10, just by way of background, uh, where God gave Peter that lesson. In Acts chapter 10, uh, God is going to use Peter to evangelize one of the first Gentiles to get saved and to join the church. And he was a Roman, and his name was Cornelius. And he was a centurion. He was in the Roman army. He was not a Jew. And God was going to commission Peter to... Uh, meet Cornelius and to welcome him into the church. But before he did that, God had to give Peter a lesson because he knew that Peter was prejudiced. He was a bigot. He had the wrong attitude towards Gentiles, people who were non-Jews. And so God gives Peter a lesson through a vision. And so Peter sees this vision of heaven and he sees these unclean animals that he thinks are forbidden and he shouldn't eat. And God says, Peter, rise up, kill and eat that food. And at first Peter didn't want to do it, but God said, no, you need to. 
And so Peter learned the lesson that God was trying to tell him that human beings are not unclean. Even the Gentiles are clean. Even the Gentiles are worthy of the love of Christ. And so the lesson sunk in and Peter learned his lesson. And listen to what Peter uh, says when he is confronted with Cornelius the Gentile. Uh, Cornelius goes to meet Peter. And Peter is among a group of people. In verse 26 of Acts chapter 10, Peter raised him up. And he said, Stand up, I too am just a man. And as he talked with him, he entered and he found many people assembled as he was about to talk to Cornelius the Gentile. And Peter said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. So Peter learned the lesson that day. God finally got through to him. The gospel is for everyone, Peter, not just the Jews. God loves the Gentiles as well. Well, Peter did learn that lesson, but uh, he stumbled still. He, he, if you're a bigot, sometimes you fall back into the temptation of still being uh, prejudiced and sinful. And Paul reports that in Galatians chapter 2, Peter f- fell back into that sin at times of being a hypocrite, of being two-faced, of not loving the Gentiles the way that he should. And so listen to the Apostle Paul talk about an incident where Peter blew it, sinned, compromised, was a two-faced hypocrite as an apostle and a church leader, and he had to be confronted by Paul for being prejudiced. So here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. He says in verse 6, but from those who are of high reputation, well, those who are of reputation contributed nothing to me, the apostle Paul's talking about leaders in the church, uh, and how God made him an apostle. In verse 9, he says, in recognizing the grace that had been given to me as an apostle, James... And Cephas, which is Peter, and John, the other apostle, who were reputed to be pillars in the church, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we might go to the Gentiles, and they would keep working with the Jews. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. Here's the key. Verse 11. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to the church at Antioch, I opposed Peter to his face. Paul had to confront Peter to the face regarding sin. What was the sin? Because Peter stood condemned. For prior to the coming of a certain men from James, Peter used to eat and socialize with the Gentiles. They had a fellowship meal after church at 5 o'clock in the evening, apparently at their church, where it was a whole bunch of Gentiles, and they ate Gentile food, probably like pork and ham and bacon, all that good stuff. And Peter, man, he was loving. This is cool. I like uh, the Gentiles now. They have good food. So Peter was having regular fellowship, eating and interacting with the Gentile Christians. But when some of the Jews, who were still legalistic, would come to the church and infiltrate and spy on Peter, see if he was hanging out with the Jews, Peter began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the Jewish circumcision. And he became a hypocrite. He was being two-faced. On one minute, Peter's saying, I can hang out with the Gentiles. And the next minute, he would say, oh, I don't like the Gentiles anymore. And these were Christians. These were believers. And that's why the Apostle Paul had to confront Peter, as a Christian and as apostle, to the face. By the way, Peter repented when Paul confronted him regarding his racial bigotry. And Peter was forgiven of that sin, but it was a real sin. It was in the life of a Christian, Peter. It was in the life of an apostle, Peter. And, you know, racial bigotry, it comes from the heart. It has to do, it is a sin of the heart. That's why John Lennon, his answers and everything else, the secular world, they're not going to give the proper solution to racial hatred and bigotry because it issues from the heart. It's not superficial. It is an issue of sin. It's like Jeremiah 13, 23. About 15 years ago, Rodney King, who got beat up, messed up with the L.A. police, 
He, he made a famous statement, and he said, regarding racial bigotry, why can't we all just get along? Can't we all just get along? And he was talking about the races. Can't we all just get along? The answer is no, Rodney, we can't. Because Jeremiah 13 says, can a leopard change his spots? Can the black Ethiopian change his skin? Then a sinner cannot change his way on his own. So no, we can't just all get along and do it in our own strength. We need God's help. We need supernatural answers. So now let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 and see what God, his supernatural answer is, is to solving racial hatred, division between the races and specifically between the Jews and the Gentiles. Because that's what he's talking about. So let's go ahead and look at it. I just came up with three basic points uh, out of this text that I wanted to highlight. I'm going to give you the answers there up front. Uh, in this passage, Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, Paul tells how now... All believing Jews and Gentiles, anybody that is a Christian, regarding, regardless of your ethnic background, have been reconciled to each, other, to each other spiritually and relationally in three ways. Paul highlights. Number one, through the sacrificial death of one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through one Savior. Number two, for the purpose of creating one body. And then number three, now sharing continual access to one Father. So let's look at the first point here that Paul is making, and that is that unity has been brought between Jews and Gentiles through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Going back to verse 11, he says, Therefore remember that you, formerly you, the Gentiles, that would be us, anybody that is not a Jew, but is a Christian, we are called uncircumcision because we were not circumcised on the outside, the, the Gentiles were not, by the so-called circumcision, that is the Jews, which is performed in flesh by human hands. Remember that you Gentiles were at one time separate from Christ. In other words, the Gentiles, they didn't have a promised Messiah, but Israel did. All throughout the Old Testament, God promised Israel they have a Messiah, they have a deliverer. The Gentiles did not have a specific deliverer to identify with to save them as a nation and as a people. Also, he reminds the Gentiles that they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They were not a part of the Israelite theocracy that God was in charge of. In other words, they didn't have citizenship in a heavenly kingdom. They weren't citizens of God. When you're not a citizen, you don't have any rights and privileges, do you? You can't vote, you don't have rights and privileges. So the Gentiles didn't have rights and privileges with Almighty God. Also, uh, it says that they were strangers of the covenants of promise. Covenants is plural. There are three main covenants in the Old Testament. The first one was the Abrahamic covenant we just read in Genesis 12. That was given to Abraham who would become the first Jew. That was not given to the Gentiles, where God promised Israel land and descendants and great blessing as a nation. Now, there was a residual promise uh, to all the peoples of the earth, but that promise was given to Abraham and the nation of Israel. And the other two covenants in the Old Testament, there was the Davidic covenant later on in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised the nation of Israel the Messiah would reign as king. And actually, they would have... Uh, descendants reigning on the throne of Israel until the culmination of the greatest king would come, and that would be the Messiah himself. And that was the Davidic covenant, and that was just an expansion of the Abrahamic covenant. And then the last covenant that God gave the nation of Israel, as just before their destruction, was the new covenant. And that was expanding the Abrahamic covenant even more, and the emphasis was on eternal spiritual, internal spiritual blessings, that God would write uh, his law on the hearts of the people, and also that he would give his Holy Spirit to live inside of people. That had never been said before. So that was a new dimension to the covenants that were given to the Israelites. So those were the three main covenants of promise given to the nation of Israel. The Gentiles didn't have these covenants from God. 
So it was an awesome privilege that Israel had. Also, Paul goes on in verse 12, he says that the Gentiles had no hope. In other words, they didn't have a future. They had no guarantee. They didn't have a doctrine about the future. The Gentiles, they didn't know what happened after death. It was a mystery. God never literally communicated that to Gentiles. They didn't have a hope. They didn't have a future. They didn't have a promise of a coming Messiah to look forward to. They didn't know anything about a doctrine of bodily resurrection. That was only taught and given to the Jews. So they had no hope regarding the future. They had no hope beyond the grave. It was a mystery. And they lived in great fear because they didn't have any hope. And then finally, he says, and you were without God in the world. Literally, you were atheists. You believed in the wrong God. You didn't even know the Creator God. Gentiles. So the Israelites had all these great privileges. Now, one thing that this did throughout time, being that the Gentiles didn't have all these privileges, is it made them very jealous and very angry towards the Jews. So not only do you have the Jews in Jesus' day with a very prideful, arrogant, condescending attitude towards the Gentiles, the Gentiles, in return, had a very jealous attitude towards the Jews. The Gentiles, they despised the Jews. They thought they were arrogant and puffed up and weird and different. So they just hated each other. They wanted nothing to do with each other. So how in the world can you possibly bring a Jew and a Gentile together and make them one when they have hundreds of years of animosity towards one another? Well, Paul gives the solution. It was through the work of Jesus Christ because he says in verse 13, Okay, Gentile Christian, here's what happened. But now in Jesus Christ, you who were formerly far off. In other words, you were not near to God. You didn't know God personally. You have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Brought near means... to be brought close to somebody. That's, we say it today. Are you close to that person? Yeah, are they a close friend of yours? There he's saying through Jesus Christ, the Gentiles have been brought close to God. They can be a close friend of God Almighty, and it was through Jesus Christ. Verse 14, For he himself, the Lord Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh, that's through his death, through the cross, that's how he did it. The Lord Jesus Christ brought Jew and Gentile together through his death by dying on the cross because Jesus had to die on the cross for two main reasons. Because the law that God gave to the Jews required two things. It required perfect obedience, which nobody could do, and it also required the death penalty if you broke the law. So the Lord Jesus came down and he lived a perfect life of obedience fulfilling every requirement of the law. And even though he never sinned, he still died on behalf to fulfill that requirement that the law asked for, the death of sinners. So the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life fulfilling the law, and then he died for sinners, also fulfilling the law. And that is how he could bring sinners, Jew and Gentile, together in one body. It was the death of Jesus Christ. His death fulfilled every requirement that the law asked for. By the way, Jesus wasn't just the Savior of the Jews. He was the Savior of the whole world. Jesus came here as a Jew so he could die for the Jews, but did you know that Jesus also had Gentile blood in his genealogy? Like if you look in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy and look at those names, and genealogies are important because there's two names that jump out. There's Rahab, who was a Canaanite and not a Jew. She was in Jesus' genealogy. And then there was Ruth. She was also in the genealogy of David and the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And she was not a Jew. She was from Moab. She was a pagan. And she was converted to the true faith. So that is in the genealogy of Jesus. So Jesus could die for the Jews because he was a Jew and also because he was the Savior of the world. 
even having Gentile blood in his genealogy. And then if you look at Luke chapter 3, it traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to the first man, Adam. And Paul says in the book of Acts that we all, every single one of us, regardless of our ethnicity and where we live, we came from one man, from one blood. God brought this whole race into existence. So we are all related, every one of us. And that's how Jesus could die for every single person, be it Jew or Gentile, and he did. And that's why that Samaritan woman that we saw in John chapter 4, Jesus talked to her, confronted her of her sin. She, uh, she, he revealed the fact that he was the Messiah. She believed in him as Messiah, and I believe by the end of the story, she became a believer. She became a follower of Jesus. And she exclaimed at the end of the story, there in chapter 4, verse 40, 42, she told all of her friends that Jesus was the Savior of the world which would mean Jews and Gentiles. And he accomplished it through his death. So that's number one. Jesus accomplishes racial unity through his death. Point number two. Why did he do this? He brought Jew and Gentile together because he wanted to create one new body. Look at verse 14. You've got your Bible there in Genesis, in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 14. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, brought peace between Jew and Gentile. And this is believing Jew and believing Gentile. And he made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity or the hatred. There was hatred between Jews and Gentiles. And what created the hatred or the hostility between Jews and Gentiles? Was it the law? No. It was the abuse of the law. Because the law that God gave to Moses was good. The law was not evil. The law was good. Romans chapter 7 tells us that. The law was holy. It was good. It was from God. It reflected God's character. It was those who abused the law. It resulted in hostility and hatred between Jew and Gentile. So Christ came and he destroyed the enmity or hostility from the abuse of the law, bringing Jew and Gentile together, making one new man. Verse 15 says that when you become a Christian, you become one new man. He took believing Jews, believing Gentiles, and created an entire new entity. There were no longer Jews. There were no longer Gentiles. There was one new man. This new man is called the body, the body of Christ, the church. And the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he refers to Christians as a, as a nation, a new nation. In Paul's terminology here, he says that it is one new man, and he's talking about the church, the body of Christ. The moment you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, but also, according to 1 Corinthians 12, something else unique happens. The moment you get saved, you, every single individual member, gets baptized in the body of Christ supernaturally. And we all that day become members of the body of Christ, of this one new man or this new entity or this literally new nation. Some people talk about America as a Christian nation. And there's recent talk about other nations that are they're trying to make them Christian nations. Did you know there is not a Christian nation on planet Earth today? In the literal sense of nations? And I might hurt somebody's feelings uh, by saying this, but America is not a Christian nation. And in the technical sense, the term was never a Christian nation. Was it built on Christian principles? Absolutely. And biblical truth? Absolutely. And by some godly people? Absolutely. And does our Constitution and the Declaration of Independence have biblical Christian influence? Absolutely. But technically speaking, America is not a Christian nation in the same sense that Israel was a theocracy, a theocratic nation. But there is, a nation, there is a Christian nation that exists today, and it is the church, because that's Peter's terminology. 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 9, he calls the church a holy nation. So is there a Christian nation today? Yes, I would say yes. And it is not America, it is the church. 
It is the redeemed church. It is anybody that is truly saved is added and becomes that new nation. And by the way, another word that Paul uses in verse 15 when he's talking about the church, he says, God took Jews who hated the Gentiles, and he took Gentiles, saved them, and made one new body, one new entity, called the church, and he calls it one new man. And he uses the word new, meaning the church prior to this time didn't exist. Did you know the church did not exist in the Old Testament? Some people believe that and teach that. Some people will say, well, the church actually started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, or the church uh, started with Abraham, or the church, you can find it all throughout. There are theologians and people who believe the church existed in the Old Testament. Paul is saying, no, uh, it was the death and resurrection and the Holy Spirit coming upon people that created the church for the first time. So the church is a new man. It's a new entity. It didn't exist in the Old Testament. It was a mystery in the Old Testament. It was hidden from all people that God would do this new thing. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, he predicted and said, I will build my church. It wasn't already being built. He was going to do it after his death and resurrection. So this new man, this new entity, this new body, this new humanity, this new race, this new redeemed nation that we can be a part of is called the church, Christ's body. And that's why one of the main reasons why Christ died to reconcile Jews and Gentiles because he is the savior of the world and created this new body of people called his beloved church. And then in chapter 3, he's going to talk more and more about the church and our identity in Christ corporately. Now go on to number 3. God brought Jew and Gentile through the death of Jesus Christ in a supernatural way, bringing unity, creating the new man, creating the church, so that they could have continual shared access to one Father. The Jews did not have access to God in the Old Testament because the only way you could have access to God was following all those rules and regulations that God gave Israel, right? And it was through what? It was through the priests. It was through the high priest. It was through the Levitical priest. So you had to go through the proper channels in order to get to God to do the right thing. The Gentiles didn't have a priesthood. The good news is there's a new greater priest that has come to the world, and that is Jesus Christ. He's called the, our high priest after the Melchizedek order. And that means he is a high priest for everyone who believes in him. And what does a priest do? A priest provides access to God. And since the Lord Jesus Christ is the high priest for anyone who believes in Him, He automatically gives you direct access to God, the Creator of the universe, on a personal level. So if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and come to know Him and become a Christian, now for the first time in your life, from the time you get saved, you have direct access to Almighty God, the Creator. You can talk to Him the way a child talks to his father. And it is through the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection that provides that for every individual, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you now have access to the same God, to the same Father, as one of His children. The way He does that, according to Paul, in verses 16 through 18 there in Ephesians, I'll just read that, uh, starting at verse 16. Christ died, provided access... uh, and might reconcile both Jews and Gentiles into one body of the church to God through the cross by it having put to death the hatred or hostility. And Jesus came and preached peace to you, the Gentiles, who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, that is Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have our access in one spirit to the Father. And his main point there is that it is possible for a Gentile who didn't have all these promises that the Israelites do, they can now have access, direct access to Almighty God because of the Holy Spirit. Because the moment you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of you and is now mediating on your behalf 
of every prayer you pray, every thought you think to the Lord Jesus Christ and to Almighty God, who is now your Father and has adopted you into His family through a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is an awesome truth. And what I'd like to say in conclusion, I want to read Galatians 3.28. If you have your Bible, let's just read that, because this is a very important verse um, regarding this unity that we have, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. The emphasis isn't on what your ethnic origin is or what your racial identity is. The emphasis is on, do you know Jesus Christ personally or not? Really, there's only two kinds of humanity, and I've said it before. There are those who are redeemed and those who are not redeemed. There are those who are Christians and those who are not Christians. Your race has nothing to do with it. We all came from Adam. There's only one Savior. He died for the whole world. And Paul reminds us again in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, just a great blessed verse. We'll close with this. He says, verse 26, talking to Christians, For you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then verse 28, For there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's no distinctions. There is no, no Jewishness, no Gentiles. Your race doesn't matter. Ethnic origin doesn't matter. There is neither slave nor free. doesn't matter how much money you make. There is neither male nor female. Gender doesn't matter either. For you, Christians, are all one in Christ Jesus. Because we're all part of God's family. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray to our Father because we have direct access because He's provided that for us through His Holy Spirit. Father, we do thank You for your love for us. God, thank you for sending Jesus Christ as Savior of the world, as the Samaritan woman testified. Savior for every person, whether an adult or child, regardless of their gender, how much money they make, and today, as we learn, regardless of their race. And how you don't despise uh, those who are not Jews, and yet you love the whole world. That's what you said in your words. You love the whole world, and that prompted you Send the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. We thank you for that. We thank you for true, real, racial harmony and all kinds of true harmony we can have through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that you've adopted us into your family, giving us one access through your Holy Spirit. We give you the praise and the glory for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.